If you would turn to the book of Malachi, uh, we'll be in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14 this morning. Uh, a couple of quick things to celebrate and something you can be praying for. Uh, Chris Fogel's song in Mountain City Church, are, um, there's a building in downtown Jasper that's coming up for auction. Uh, the 14th, it's got like a 10-day window. I think it's the 14th through the 24th. So if you would, be praying for them that their offer would be accepted. One of their great desires is to be in the downtown Jasper area to be part of uh, what's going on in that community. And so there's several offers that are on that building. And uh, just pray that the Lord would give them favor if that's where he would have them to locate. Currently, they are wor worshiping in the parks and rec, uh, but that is for a limited time. I think through July, and then they have to find somewhere else to go. And it's just, it's just been a hard season for them trying to find a place to worship. So pray for them. Um, Jody Stancil and his wife are, the Lord has blessed them with their third child. It's on the way. So if you would be praying for her, she's about 14 weeks at this point. And so be praying for Jody, who's the pastor of Riverside Community Church. Michael Laughlin is leading worship there this morning to help them out. So uh, let's be, be in prayer for them as well. Um, and then also several of our members have received houses and jobs, and the Lord has just been good. And so I hope that as we come to worship this morning, we recognize his faithfulness to us. All right, as we continue in the book of Malachi, we've got to remember uh, the very firm foundation on which uh, this, this book and everything that Malachi is going to say to the people of God in which it is rooted. Remember, we've used the term indicative, which just means that which is declared and firm uh, that serves as the foundation for all of the imperatives, which is the stuff they're supposed to do. So there's what they are supposed to know, right, firmly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, so that what they do is anchored in what they know, right? And that's critically important for us. And even more important is what that indicative is in the book of Malachi. So here's where I know most of you are Presbyterians, and so this is hard for you to speak in a service, but we're going to try it real quick, okay? So what's the indicative on which all of the imperatives are going to be grounded from uh, the first few verses in Malachi? God's love for at least one of you is a Christian uh, and has been paying attention. We're going to try that again because I think it's important for us to say. And, and confess to. So let's confess it together. The indicative on which Malachi's book is founded, the Christian life is founded, all that we are is founded, everything that we will do is founded, is God's love for us. And if we don't start there, uh, everything gets haywire. Because what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm afraid many of you are going to hear in one of two keys. Now, oftentimes we talk about the banks of the river here. What we're actually going to be talking about are two different ditches. The first ditch is one that we use a fancy theological term for. It's called antinomianism, right? And antinomianism just means against law or I can do whatever I want because it doesn't matter, right? It's the attitude that what we do doesn't matter and it cheapens grace on the whole, okay? So that's one ditch. The other ditch, and this is, I'm not necessarily picking sides of the room, by the way. It's not that I think this crowd's a little more antinomian than the legalists on this side. But the other ditch is legalism, which says that, that basically God's love is earned through my behavior. So those are the two ditches. And anytime you hear an imperative, 
You are predisposed toward one of those two ditches to hear it in that particular key. Every single one of us has a slight predisposition. But what's interesting is that also every single one of us can tip one way or the other depending on what we're talking about. So also recognize that you're not off the hook in toto with either ditch. So we have to be active in making sure that we're hearing, right, rightly what it is that God is saying to us and calling for us to do and why. And so if you hear something this morning, if you feel overwhelmed, burdened, or discouraged by something you hear, or if you think that what you're about to hear doesn't matter, let's talk. Uh, because it's, it's critically important that we, we hear this in the right tone because everything from here, uh, the rest of this sermon series, is all imperative. It's all stuff that we're going to be challenged on. And there is a paradoxical tension between the two ditches, isn't there? No, you cannot get God to love you any more than he has already chosen to do in Christ. You can't. Your behavior does not affect in any way, shape, nor form his love for you. But what your behavior does affect is your understanding, appreciation, and active involvement in his love for you, right? So it's critical that we maintain that tension because we tip, don't we, back and forth. And we can't help ourselves sometimes. So I want to make sure that what you hear this morning is far more encouraging, edifying, and comfortable or comforting to you uh, than it is uh, you getting punched in the face this morning. And so I'm going to pause and just pray for that real quick, and then we'll jump in. Father, you say, comfort, comfort my people. May your word do that for us this morning. May we found uh, everything that we think that we are supposed to do, everything that, that, that we do in fact do in your love, that we first know that you loved us and that it is that love that allows us to love you and our neighbor in return and live any of this out in a meaningful fashion. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so this morning, what I want us to get from this is that our worship reflects our understanding and appreciation of God's love for us. Did you hear that? I want to make sure that, that we, we, that our worship, it is reflective of our understanding and appreciation of God's love for us. If you try to worship for any other reason, it's not, it is not going to grant you life more abundant in Christ. It's just not going to do it. If you come in here and you say, it doesn't matter. God should just be happy I showed up this morning. God should, God should just accept whatever it is I would like for him to have. That is not okay. Nor should you come in here this morning, I'll make this the legal aside for a little while, nor should you come in here this morning and say, because I showed up at 1025, and because I was in my seat meditating upon the grandeur of God's glory, and because I read the Institutes at five this morning, therefore, God loves me more than he does those slackers who bedraggled themselves in at 1035. I don't know why that's that voice for the legalists, but I think they're all British or something. I just, it's just natural. So neither one of those work, right? Uh, and we're all coming in here in various forms and fashions, and I want to make sure that what we get 
is a, a right understanding of what it is that God is actually asking of us in worship. Let me ask you a question first. Uh, what makes you feel honored or respected? What is it that actually makes you feel as if you are heard and that you matter? Is another way of putting it. Sometimes it's easier maybe to answer the question, what actually dishonors you or disrespects you? For some of us, it is just someone looking at you the wrong way. For some of us, it is not being paid attention to or heard, right? For some of us, it is not being acknowledged for something that we've done. Parents, do you ever feel this way? Right? Or even children, by the way. It can cut both ways. And so it's important that we recognize that the very things that make us feel honored and respected and the very things that make us feel dishonored and disrespected probably are because we share the image with God in many respects. And he too is honored and respected when he is heard. He too is honored and respected when he is acknowledged. And you may say, well, that's, I mean, come on, what, where's the humility in that? Well, no, he's God, and he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of us recognizing that he loves us and that he's loved us most in sending Christ his son so that it is, in fact, finished. And so that whatever condition that you came in here this morning, you are not relying upon that at all. If you stayed up too late last night watching the Warriors beat the tar out of the Pelicans because the game started at 1030, they clearly don't care about Sunday morning worship in the NBA. If you stayed up too late watching that and you're struggling, here's the good news for you. That offering wasn't going to change God's love for you anyway. It's not that it doesn't matter and that you shouldn't try, but you get to try in the strength of Christ not in what it is you had to bring. If you went to bed last night at nine o'clock and you prayed from eight to nine in great ecstasy and you, 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 it just, your, your heart is full and you're prepared, fantastic. I am glad you were here and I'm glad you did that. But it doesn't mean that you're any better than anybody else in here and it doesn't mean that God loves you somehow more. And if you came in here this morning just having had a fight with some significant person in your life and you were trying to get it together before you saw me at the front door because you know I pick up on this kind of stuff and you just don't want to hear about it, Christ said it is finished for you too, that that is not what has the final say. That you get to come in here in his righteousness. You get to come in here and worship in his finished work. Amen? And so, while I want you to be on time, and I want you to appreciate all the aspects of our liturgy, and I'd love for you to stay awake for at least half of this sermon, the first half. And I want you to enjoy communion, and I want you to have prepared. The good news is, it's not what I want for you. It's what Christ has done for you. And it's not that it doesn't matter. Yes, you should, but it's the right heart. And that's where it gets tricky for us because that takes it out of our control, now doesn't it? And the harder we try, oftentimes, the harder our heart becomes when not recognized.
And the less we try, the harder our heart becomes because we haven't put any effort into it. We haven't cultivated anything and you can't flourish like that. And so this is a continuance of God's burden for his people. The reason he's saying something to them is because he loves them and he recognizes that what they are doing is actually carrying them further from him. Remember, what is the entire goal of Genesis to Revelation? Susan, what'd you say? For God to be with his people. More of you, you ought to be able to answer that easy. That ought to be fast upon your lips that if it ain't for God to be with his people, it's Jesus. Those are the two best answers you can give. Abrahamic covenant third, Tower of Babel fourth. I don't know why, but it just is, okay? So, so let's try that again. Let's see if we can get a little participation going. I know if you're visiting with us this morning, yes, it's like this every week. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what is the purpose? What is God's goal and will for Genesis to Revelation and his people? To God, for God to dwell with his people. And what happens in worship guaranteed, regardless of how you show up, regardless of the songs we sing, regardless of how old those songs are, regardless of what hymnal they came from, regardless of what order our worship is in, regardless of all of those things, what did God promise he would do? He's here. He is worthy of our honor and our praise. He is worthy of us showing him some measure of respect. He's worthy of us admitting to that fact. And so listen to what John McKay, Old Testament scholar, says. He says, God's love for his people was unquestionably evident in their history. But it is a love that demands a response. The problem in Malachi's day was that an appropriate reaction had not been forthcoming from the people. See, here's what's interesting about that line. And I'm afraid you could hear the demand response as a call to law. It's not. The demanding a response is actually come to me because I love you. In the same way that you, in interacting with your children or your significant other, when you uh, do certain things, there's a, a response that's demanded. <laughs> the very first time I told Susan I loved her, uh, it was a Seinfeld episode, actually, because uh, I think, I think uh, one of the characters did the same thing. I think George actually told his girlfriend one time, he says, I love you, and she was like, okay. That's exactly what Susan did. I remember we were sitting in the truck. She was getting ready to go back to work. And I said, I think I love you. She goes, okay. And gets out of the truck and closes the door. And... Okay. Well, uh, I felt like it demanded a response other than okay. Just something where I'd know where, which way to go from there, right? Not this, this, this state of liminal oddness. And so, so in the same way, God has declared that he loves you in sending Christ and providing for you and protecting you and bringing you this far and allowing you to be here this morning. God has said to you, I love you. And that is over the thunder of Sinai, that is over the thunder of law, that is over the thunder of your sin, your shame, your guilt. He has said it stiller, smaller, quieter but somehow much louder. 
And so as we turn to this text, make sure that you keep that in mind. Also, we have to remember the characters of both Jacob and Esau because that factors into how we understand these things. So with all that, let's actually get to the word that we came for. If you would hear the reading of God's word, this is Malachi 1, 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say, that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, God begins uh, his inquiry after he's declared his love to them, and that is the firm indicative foundation. He begins to move into the imperatives. Notice where he starts. He starts with their worship. He's going to get to their ethics and how they live and love their neighbor, but he starts first with how they are loving the Lord their God in response. And notice what group of people he comes to first. Me, the elders, the priests, the ones who are responsible for the handling of the things of God. How could these people offer these things if the priests weren't accepting it and saying nothing to them? I know sometimes it's uncomfortable when I say things to you. The two times I've made you the maddest is when I talked about the Sabbath, right? And when I say anything to you about being on time to church, that tends to kind of, it's funny how time is the thing that we're most rattled about. I don't talk about money a whole lot or that would probably be way up there too. But when it comes to your time, you get a little, you, you, you get a little verklempt about it. And so, so, but do know that I am going to have to answer for you. Hebrews 13, all of us as elders have to answer for you. 
And so when we bring things to your attention, if it is biblical and if it is to honor and respect the Lord, please recognize that's the spirit from which it comes. It is not because I need you to be anywhere. It is not because I think more of you or less of you or God thinks more of you or less of you, but it's to remind you that some things are reflective of a heart condition. If we don't say anything, we essentially are saying we don't love you and we don't care what you do. And so here he challenges the priests first and he comes at them from the commandments themselves. He challenges them straight away with commandment number five, which is honor your mother and father. And he's saying, look, if I'm supposed to be your father, the one who protects and provides for you, then where is my honor? And if I am master, if I am the one who, again, protects and provides for you, just using another image or illustration, where is my fear, which is awe, that's not trembling and scared of and cowering from, but actually approaching with respect and awe? And so he says, it is you, O priests, who have profaned my name. Thus they have violated the third commandment, which is taken the Lord's name in vain. As we made it clear in here before, taking the Lord's name in vain is not just stubbing your toe and cussing. It is actually to say you are something that you are not. It is to say, I'm a Christian, I'm of Christ, but live in such a way that is antithetical to that completely. It's arrogant. And so he's challenging them with the very law it is that they are supposed to be about. In fact, they are violating all kinds of laws when it comes to the purity of the offering. And it's clear to them, they should know better. Leviticus 27, Leviticus 20, all of these things talk about the kind of thing you can offer upon God's altar. And they, the priests, were the ones who were supposed to make sure that that is in fact what was happening. Now, this is why we have church membership in part, so that we can hear your testament. This is why uh, in Reese coming to the table this morning, she needed to meet with us just to hear her story because we're responsible for her, just as her parents are. But as the church, we, we have a, a, a responsibility to serve her well. And so this is why we have structures in place to know you, to hear your story, not so we can discipline you, but it's more to protect and provide for you in the name of God. And so we're responsible for those things. And so God is challenging the type of worship that's going on because it is more reflective of Esau than of Jacob. See, they have determined that the law doesn't matter. They have determined that how you worship doesn't matter. Whatever you want to bring is fine. God ought to be perfectly happy that you went to the effort to show up this morning. And if that's your attitude this morning, you are arrogant. And you are numbered among Esau's people in that behavior. You are essentially saying that that it doesn't matter. You can usurp what God has said do and not do. You can decide, just like Esau did. Esau very viscerally said, I don't care about all that stuff. I'll do what I want to do. And he rode that train all the way to the end, and his people followed him. And so no, God is not pleased with whatever it is you've determined is okay. But don't let that rattle you because he loves you so much that he has provided everything needed. He gave the perfect lamb. He provided Christ as the Passover lamb, as the Paschal lamb, as the offering that we will partake of this morning in communion as the sign and seal of our salvation. 
He has provided everything necessary for you to come in here boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need, both in a time of mercy or a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. So the attitude with which we, we can come is just to be honest, to be able to say, Lord, I don't have much to give. This is all I got. And I know I didn't, I didn't prepare well this morning. And I know that my head feels like it's on backwards, and I don't know if I'm going to get a whole lot out of this, but I'm here because I know you're here, and that's the best place in the world to be. That is acceptable to the Lord. Now, we should grow. You can't apply that every single Sunday. I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's mature. It's not evidence of our growing. But there are just some Sundays, that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to have. You'll get here by the skin of your teeth and later. You'll get here not feeling well, not being able to pay attention very well. You're just going to get here the best you can. But again, the key is, what is it that you're appealing to? Is it your strength, either by saying, you can take whatever I'll give you, or what I give you, you better acknowledge. Or instead, are you saying, Lord, thank you? Are you coming with a heart of gratitude saying, thank you for what you have given so that I could be here in the first place? You see the difference? So what he's challenging is their heart, not their behavior. You would, be mis you would misinterpret this if you thought it was all about behavior because he also challenges when they proudly give, right? Think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee prays, Lord, thank you for not making me like this man. And if you know anything about how the Pharisees pray, they would also say, or making me a woman, or making me poor, or making me any of the marginalized people that I ignore on a daily basis. Thank you very much. Except to point out, I'm glad I'm not them. Now, which, which did the Lord receive? You got the, the, the tax collector over here who says, I can't even raise my head. And he beats his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me, sinner. Which one was appropriate? The tax collectors, not the Pharisee. But notice what the tax collector doesn't say. He doesn't say, thank you for not making me a Pharisee, right? Thank you for uh, saving me and making it so that nothing I do matters. I can do whatever I want. Woo! Is my best Ric Flair impersonation. <laughs> I don't do that often, by the way. If you're visiting this morning, you don't get Ric Flair every Sunday. Just so you know. So what he's saying to them is, this is about the heart. You have made these decisions, and you think it doesn't matter. It's not that I need clean animals, but I need for your heart to reflect and know and understand that I love you. Your behavior, your worship is evidence of that. So it matters, but it's not ultimate, if that makes sense. And so he goes on to point out to them that these things are actually, they're not neutral. They're evil. That's strong language. And notice he's asking it in a dialectical question. He says, are these things not evil? And what does that mean that it, these things would be evil? That means that they would destroy them. Not that God would destroy them, but that their very actions were slowly corrupting and corroding and destroying the firm foundation on which he had established them. That it was actually robbing them of their ability to know God's love in full. 
So how we come into worship is, is for the purpose of cultivating and growing in God's love for us. Yes, we should come expectant and excited when we can. And yes, we should come in as best we can some Sundays. And that's all we're going to have. But again, it's about the heart. It's about recognizing that it's God's love, the finished work of Christ in which we come. And that it is for us to grow in and appreciate God's love and honor uh, and respect him. Note in James 4, uh, 17, it says very clearly, whoever knows, to do a th- to, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you know what to do. It's not, be- again, you're not gonna, it's not gonna make God love you more, but for you to fail to, to understand, for you to fail to come in with, uh, with, with the right orientation toward worship, which has to be established all throughout the week. It has to be established somewhere other than the ride into church, right? So this is where you can mature and grow. Part of how you will establish a better understanding of worship is what do you do the rest of the week? And again, we've tried to provide some minimum resources for you that don't take much time. Shouldn't take more than five or 10 minutes a day, which all of you have to give. Because I've been as busy as I've ever been in my life previously. I'm still fairly busy now, but it's different. I don't work three jobs and go to school 10, 15 hours. But even then, I had 10 minutes here and there. And so, make use of the resources. Cultivate not behavior, but understanding of God's love for you, and let that shape your behavior. Follow? And so, as he goes on, he makes it clear that your failure, by the way, to worship well, he says to Israel, it does not stop the Abrahamic covenant. My name will go forward and the nations will know me and they will come to worship me. This language uh, you may have recognized from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 in particular, he says, there's a people who have not been called by my name who are going to come and they are going to worship. They're going to do what you fail to do. The New Testament version of this is if you remain silent, the rocks and trees will cry out. So the Lord will be honored and glorified. The question is, you who've been invited in to do that and participate in that work, will you? And what are you doing to participate? And then he goes on to say, that his name will be made great in all the earth. And this again comes from Isaiah 45, where actual, the first version of every knee will bow comes. And it's every knee will bow to the Lord. Same language that's picked up in Philippians chapter two about Jesus, when it says every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. The Lord will be worshiped at some point in full. And the question is, will you worship him as father? Or... Will you receive the sword from him as judge? And praise be to God that he is so patient and so long-suffering. Again, I want to actual issue a retraction from something I said last week because it was wrong. Bill, it turns out, was right. He was closer to the total. The total time that he gave Esau and Edom to come around was almost 1,600 years. So that just means God was more gracious than what I said at 500, 600 years. So God is incredibly patient. He's incredibly kind. And remember, he promised 
that the third generation of the Edomite children could come into the temple. So they, at some point, would be able to worship. It wasn't a zero sum. So the Lord is patient with us, his people. Do we come in here celebrating that patience and that long-suffering? Do we come in here recognizing how deep the Father's love for us, that he would say, come ye sinners, because if you tarry until you're better, guess what? You're never going to come. That's why we sang that song. And so every knee will bow. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. This is why in Genesis 15, it is God alone who makes the covenant because it rests fully upon him. And that's good news to us. That means we don't have to have it all together to come, to worship. But what we do need is right perspective and a firm foundation, which is God's love for us. And so their failure to worship in a way that honored and glorified him, robbed them of participating in the very thing that they were created for. You do know that your salvation is for something. You were saved for something to do something, right? He's given every single one of you in here, uh, he's given you a gift. And let me tell you what one of the gifts is not. There is not a gift that you have listened to over, I don't know, five or 10,000 reform sermons. There's no gift for that. And see, the reason I say that is because I think that, that there are times that we far more emphasize sitting and listening and the capacity to sit and listen to the right person who gets it all right, which that person doesn't exist, by the way. That includes me. Instead of, am I, sir, am I going somewhere? Am I participating in the life of a church where I can actually use my gifts, talents, abilities either in my neighborhood, on my job, or within the context of the local church. I almost never hear anybody say that they are looking for a church where they can use their gifts and it's a healthy thing. Almost always it is, I want the ability to sit and listen. I want the ability to be affirmed by what is being preached, not confronted too much. Just ease up, let's back off a little bit on that. And don't hear me saying that preaching doesn't matter because it does, but it only matters so far as it moves you to actually go and do. I'm just quoting to you the Bible. Isaiah 1 makes it very clear. Preached this in here before. He says, what is this noise you call worship? What is this trampling of my courts, this funeral that you have instituted? When instead, what you ought to be doing, this ought to be generating within you a love for the widow, and the orphan, a call to serve the poor and the oppressed, which again, that's not all there is, by the way. But what he's saying is your worship ought to result in an ethic, a lived ethic, something that is tangible and seen. If it's not, what is it that actually that you're doing? What were you saved for? Remember that. And then the whole idea that shouldn't God just be satisfied with what we have shown up to give him? Notice what he says. Actually, it would be better if somebody went and closed the doors so that this strange fire would not be offered upon my altar. I would rather y'all not worship at all. Some of you just went, yes, finally, a Sunday off. Yeah, but Jesus, Jesus kind of messed that up. He died and made the way, and so we don't get to close the doors anymore. 
But notice that God said it would actually be better for the coming generations, it would be better for the present generations that they not hear this twisted, distorted worship. That actually that's more damaging than no worship at all. And so he says, I wish there was somebody who was strong enough to rise up and close the doors. But praise be to God that the Ancient of Days has come, and instead what we have is the doors have been flung open. Fling wide, ye heavenly gates. Praise God that we don't need someone to try to, to, to judge our sacrifices, to judge what we're bringing. Praise God, I don't have to stop you at the door and like use some sort of Scientology-type wand to wave you and see what kind of light shows up to get, check your chakras or whatever it is that goes on there and, and make sure you're okay for worship. Praise God, you get to come freely because of what Christ has done for you. And amen. Praise God that you don't have to have it all together to be able to come. Praise God that it's not judged by man. However, God does see our hearts and God does long for us to have life more abundant. And when we worship well, when we walk in light of his love for us and recognize that it, is, it has no height, no breadth, no width, no bottom, you can't measure it. It's measureless. When we walk in light of that truth, he knows that we are truly free, which is what he sent Christ to do. Set us free. If you would hear Eugene Merrill's words about this passage, he's an Old Testament scholar. He says, the name of Yahweh is profaned, says the Lord, by the disdain shown his table and its fruit. That is, one cannot claim to revere God while at the same time fail to worship him in a proper manner. The cultus, or worship, is not the means of achieving a saving relationship with him, but one cannot maintain that relationship and at the same time count the cultus, or worship, as of no importance. That is clearly the import of this entire oracle or burden. How we worship is reflective of our understanding and appreciation of God's love for us just is. And again, the beauty is we get to be honest about it when it's not so hot. We get to be honest about it and not be destroyed when we confess, hey, something is wrong. In fact, you should use all the means of grace around you to work through that. Come to us, the elders, and let us walk with you, help you. We're not going to judge you. If you think for a second that I am thrilled to be here every Sunday, you don't know me very well. It's like I told my son one time. He was about 14, and uh, we were in the car. And he was being a typical 14-year-old boy, <coughs> whatever that means. And uh, I looked at him, I said, Devin, you're operating under the false presupposition that you're just a joy to be around. <laughs> and we can't wait to hear whatever kind of sarcasm falls from your lips. And I kept driving. I kind of did the whole, like, I love you, okay. Uh, and Devin, it just wrecked Devin for a bit. Like he, he just could not understand. He just thought we as parents had been instituted by God to, to just kind of serve, like just love everything he does. Um, and you may say, God, Cameron, you're a horrible parent. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Uh, but he's, he's doing okay today. Uh, I don't think he's going on Oprah anytime soon. And so, uh, so he, but it, it, it resonated with him over time. He actually came back to me later on and said, you know, when you said that to me, I, he said it rattled me pretty hard. I said, good, I was trying to. 
because you were operating under a false presupposition that was going to hurt you long term. In the same way, God has decentered us. He pressed in and hit us with the whole, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I've hated, which that rattles us. Because we're like, whoa, 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 which side am I on again? Am I a Jacobite? Am I Edomite? What am I? Well, it depends on how arrogant you are. See, one of the beautiful things about Jacob was that he was, was he perfect, by the way? Not by, not by a long shot. But one of the things that's interesting, if you read Jacob's story, is he is always repentant when confronted by God. Esau, on the other hand, he never bowed, and he never really broke, and his tears were meaningless. So, which is it for you? Are you a sinner saved by grace, who if it were left to your devices couldn't raise your head in this service to save your life? Or, or are you more of an Edomite? That you think you know God's word and you control God's word and you, what you do matters so much to God, he can't, he can't wait to see you on Sunday to see how amazing you are. Or are you more of an Edomite in that you don't think any of this matters, you're just going through the motions. So what are some of the ways that you prepare for worship? What role does the fact that God loves you play in your preparation and worship experience? Every single one of you, if you do anything to prepare for worship, it ought, the lion's share ought, of it ought to be meditating and celebrating God's love for you. The lion's share of it. Giving thanks for what Christ has done for you. Giving thanks for the fact that you're saved to God, not from God. Giving thanks that when you sin, you can now run to the throne of grace. You don't got to run from him and get it together before you can come back. And then what role does whether or not God was pleased with your offering play in your preparation and worship experience? We've talked about this in here before. If after this service is over, that what you mainly have for lunch is me or Josh or whomever, right? Not have us over for, but have us for lunch. Uh, because you're like, wow, that, you could have done better than that. And he's wearing the same shirt as Cody Foster. They're dressed like twins. It's ridiculous, which is true, by the way. We are wearing the exact same outfit. And I called it an outfit, so that's awesome. Uh, and so, so <laughs> it's really not awesome, actually. Uh, and so, or, man, Josh, he, Josh was giving us la. I needed la. La. See the difference? La. Right? Are you all about the fact that, you know, Mark was tearing it up, devil went down to Georgia style, or whatever it is that you focus on? And again, it's not that you getting something out of this doesn't matter. It does, by the way. It just isn't primary. It's secondary or tertiary at best. What matters most is that you ask this question. Lord, were you pleased with what I had to offer this morning? And the better way to say it is, Lord, did what I do this morning reflect my understanding of your love for me? And that can look a thousand different ways, by the way. That matters far more than any opinion that we may have about the liturgy, any opinion we may have about any individual song, any opinion we may have about preaching style, music style, any of those things, what matters most is did you come in or at some point get a little more God's love for you? So Malachi 6, 
uh, 1, 6 through 14 teaches us that our worship reflects our understanding and appreciation of God's love for us. And listen to what Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon say about this. They say, the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ, the love that left a glorious throne and came down to dwell in our midst in this broken and pain-ridden world, the love that ultimately gave itself on the cross for us and for our salvation, this love is what confronts our cold hearts and insincere words and what ignites us into fresh adoration and praise of the living God who, by his astonishing grace, now brings us into his presence. This love is what makes us ashamed of the ways that we constantly act as if we're orphans, meaning he is not our father, or independent contractors, which means we think we have it together and have decided. Not beloved children and servants of the Most High God. So this morning, uh, we have the incredible opportunity to conclude um, this sermon and an aspect of our worship by coming to the Lord's table. You know, in this, God has declared to us, you are loved. You are loved despite all of your failures, your frailties, your brokenness, all of your, uh, you thinking that what you do is amazing, all of your type A personality, all of your wicked perfectionism. I love you anyway. What an amazing thing that he says this to us and says, and this, this will nourish you in your worship. This will help you understand a little more this morning in a tangible way that I love you. So remember what Jesus said to the disciples on what proved to be their last night together before he would be crucified. He took bread, which was part of the meal, just cut part of the everyday, and he took it and he broke it. And he says, this, this is my body, and it is broken for you. Not broken against you, not broken upon you, but broken for you, on your behalf. And what that means is, is that he absorbed in the fullness of his broken body, absorbed full in his broken body, our guilt, our shame, our anxiety, our need to be right, our need to be perfect, our need to, to hide, our need to be afraid, our need to be acknowledged. He absorbed it all. So as you receive the bread this morning, if you would hold it, and we're going to take it together as family, just meditate on how God's love has been so beautifully displayed to you in the broken body of Christ and how you get to be here this morning, you, you get to celebrate this morning despite all of your weaknesses, all of your grandiosity, all of those things. Now, the only people that shouldn't take of this table are those who at this point do not profess to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this, isn't, this really isn't a good lunch for you. And those who actually would say that someone else is undeserving of God's forgiveness, if you think again that you in arrogance can decide who takes and who doesn't, you don't understand the gospel, you need to let it pass by you this morning until you can get that figured out. If we can help you in some way, you're wrestling with that, come talk to us. If, and I don't know of anybody in this category at current, but if you are under church discipline from your home church and you're visiting with us this morning, please let the elements pass by and honor the authority of that church over you. 
but for everybody else. Regardless of the condition that you came in, if you are in Christ, know that he looks upon you and sees Christ's righteousness alone. So you get to take, no matter what you're wrestling with, no matter what is left undone, no matter what you don't have yet figured out, if you know that, you can take this morning. If the elders would go ahead and come forward, I'll pray for the element, and then we'll distribute. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much that you declare your love for us in so many different ways. Thank you in particular for the table that reminds us of the body, broken body of Christ, that reminds us of the removal of the totality of our shame and guilt, even though between the now and the not yet, we continue to wrestle. The removal of our longing to be perfect and usurp you, you've removed that too in Christ. So Lord, help us be humble, help us to be reliant, and most of all, help us to be your children, knowing that we are loved, confident in your love and your care, your protection and provision for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.